So this is one of those Sundays, even apart from uh, sending off our, our oldest daughter, where it's just a proud moment as a pastor to uh, be together as a church family. We were even talking in my office um, uh, before service. We go over, uh, how, make sure we know how things are running and what's happening and things like that. And we were sharing, and then there, it's just such a blessing to be a part of uh, Country Hills Church. And if you're not really that connected yet, um, I want to encourage you to, to do that. There's lots of ways to begin that journey. You can reach out to the office. We'll help you get involved in a small group or visit with you or uh, find ways to help you feel more a part of the church family because that's really when you get the most out of being part of a church family and when you grow the most. We can't grow apart from others. We can't just attend things and, and go away. There needs to be some human connection, whether you're digital and you reach out and it's just through phone calls and Zoom and things like that, that personal relationship or in person, um, it's really important. I learned a, a term this week. It's a term I hadn't heard before. It was in a book I was reading. And the term is behavioral contagion. It's kind of a weird, weird term. And what it refers to is uh, the reality that our behaviors can be passed from one person to another unintentionally. Uh, so that's how trends get started, right? Now, some, some trends, it's intentional, and there's marketing behind it. But a lot of things that happen, it just passes on. And one of the studies they did, they looked at uh, solar panels uh, in, in communities. And communities where people uh, started to put solar panels up on their houses, the more solar panels that went up over time, guess what? The more solar panels that continued to go up, because people would see oh, my neighbor over here, my neighbor over here, and they're for a walk, and this home has it. Must be something important. Maybe it's something I want to do, and it just spurs it on. Communities where there were no solar panels, even the best marketing, they just didn't seem to work. Now, the relative of behavioral contagion we're all familiar with, and it's peer pressure, where there's intentional pressure put on to change your values change your behavior, change your belief, change your attitudes, change your character. And we're all familiar with that. And it's one thing to um, pick something up inadvertently and find that people in your office are all, you know, cheering for a sports team or they're all wearing a certain brand or, uh, you know, this is the best yogurt ever or something like that. And you just kind of unintentionally try it for yourself and you find others are doing all that. It's another to be forced to do it. It's another to have someone say, hey, <clears throat> you should be doing that. And so this happens in our life. We all have this, don't we? So uh, when you think back to school, um, oftentimes it's, it's a pressure when you're a, a teen or young adult um, to be and do things that maybe go against your value system. So you're encouraged to you know, try some things out, uh, to break some rules and some barriers. Maybe in relationships, your boundaries of what you're... Um, comfortable with or on your faith physically, you're encouraged to, to stretch those. There's, there's pressure put on you to be and do something different than who Jesus would call you to do. And as you progress through life and you're in college and university and then you're in the work world, some of those things go from being these informal, like it's friends and people around you and the culture around you, to being things that are actually expected of you in the workplace or in your college or on um, teams where you're going to be asked to support things that you don't support. You're going to be asked to uh, behave in ways or believe in ways or think in ways that don't align with your relationship with Jesus. And really, what do you do? Like, wh what do you do? How do you prepare for something like that? 
And what we're going to discover in chapter 3 of Daniel is that it's actually not as important to know what to do in a specific situation. Although that's great to have some kind of tools in, in, in your toolbox to know in your mind, how do I address at school when they're teaching something different with my kids than what the Bible would say? What about this pressure? What about this belief? What do we believe about you know, creation and gender and identity and, and how we use our money and all these things? It's good to have some of those answers. But it's actually more important to know who goes with you through those times. It's more important to know who goes with you and who you trust, where your faith stands when you go through those times. So as with uh, last week, if you're here uh, for Daniel 2, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter of Daniel 3. Relax, we're not going to read the whole thing through, but I encourage you to. So we're going to summarize big chunks of it so we can sift what the most important pieces of that narrative. Now, it may be a very familiar narrative to you, and so uh, there's this little switch in your head when I say, uh, like, fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, it goes, bloop, heard that. And, uh, and you, you check out because you're like, I know, I know the story. So let's just get to the end. I want cake. But I encourage you, right? I encourage you to, to engage. And if you have a Bible with you, you you'll see the passages we refer, refer to on the screen. But I encourage you to read for yourself as, as we're going. It's not going to offend me because it's actually better. Because God's speaking to you. And hopefully he's speaking through me. But sometimes not. Sometimes it just comes directly from the word, which is wonderful too. So here's a bit of the background. Let me just catch us up to speed. So beginning in the book of Daniel, uh, God's people, his, his chosen people in the promised land have been fighting and they're divided into two kingdoms, uh, a northern and a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom of Judah is leaving their way. They are not following God the way they should. And so God's given them all sorts of nice chances and now He's disciplining them. And if you're a parent, you know what that's like. You don't really want to ground or discipline or anything. You give all these other warnings and nicer ways. And finally, God says, to get you back, I discipline. And he granted the Babylonian kingdom, the greatest kingdom in that particular time, that era, and their king, Nebuchadnezzar, is the new king, uh, to conquer them and take them away to a new land. And this king doesn't just you know, make them slaves and servants and stuff. He actually attempts to assimilate them. Strip away their identity in God, their um, way that they follow God, their dependence on Him, who they are, and their understanding of themselves, so that they would then see themselves no longer as Jewish or as God's chosen people, but as just Babylonians who serve their gods. And He did this by choosing young men from the royal families and training them and bringing them up. And in, in Daniel chapter 1, we see that Daniel takes a stand and he says, These ways that you are trying to assimilate us. They go against what I'm doing. And in a very uh, respectful way, he says they go against my, my values. And, and he managed to, to do what God was asking him to do and take a stand in a way that he actually was blessed through it. And he's promoted. And so are his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is their Babylonian names. They even changed their names. So Daniel's not Daniel, he's Belteshazzar. And you can look back two weeks ago to see what those names mean. They even tried to change their identity. And by Daniel chapter 2, there's this terrible thing that takes place, and the king has this dream, and he's troubled by it, and they believe that the gods, their gods, spoke to the king through dreams, because the king was chosen by the gods to lead the people. And so the king comes and says to all his wise men, to all his astrologers and fortune tellers, of which these four young men were being trained up to be administrators and wise men, and he tells them, you have to tell me my dream and interpret it, or I'll kill y'all. And, uh, and God gives Daniel 
not only the knowledge of what the king's dream is, but the interpretation. And the king listens to that dream. And he actually begins to worship the Hebrew God, Yahweh, to a degree. But he totally misses the point. Because that vision, that dream he had, was of this massive statue. And it has these different kinds of uh, precious metal, starting from the head down to the feet. And as you go down the statue, the, the precious metal gets less precious, but it gets stronger. And the interpretation is that the kingdom at the top will be great and wonderful. And it's the kingdom of Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. And another kingdom will overtake them. It won't be as spectacular, but it will be stronger. And as you go throughout time, stronger and stronger, and eventually the kingdom of Christ will come in a way that no person can see. It will spread and grow and be more magnificent and stronger than any other. And it's an everlasting kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar listened to that. And he thought, ah, my kingdom is a kingdom of gold. And so in this chapter, we find that uh, Daniel has been promoted because he inter- interpreted the dream. And he's somewhere in around the capital city. And this chapter actually changes place. So you may wonder, why isn't Daniel in chapter 3? Why aren't we talking about Daniel? Because Daniel's in around the capital city. He's now in charge of all these administrators, wise men. And his three friends are promoted as well and given some sort of charge over the province of Babylon. And in the province of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar goes there and he may be trying out something. We don't know why he's only doing what he does in that province and why it doesn't seem to impact Daniel. So it seems like maybe he's trying this thing out in this province and then we'll bring it to the rest of his kingdom. And so what he does is he builds a golden statue. So he takes this idea of a statue and his greatness and his great kingdom, and he builds a statue of himself. It's a golden one. It is 90 feet high. Okay, 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. Give you a bit of perspective. Online you might not be able to see this as well. But about the top of that screen, that's about 20 feet. Okay, so Times that by four, add, it's a nine-story-ish building, eight to nine-story building. That's a big statue. <laughs> and he makes it of gold, so he's clearly rich. And he, sa- he gives a, a decree, and he says, everyone everywhere, regardless of race, background, language, because they had captured all sorts of people into the kingdom of Babylon, when you hear this music play, and they play some sort of music on all their musical instruments, you must bow down to the image of me. Bow down and worship this idol to me. And the king has viewed it as a god as well. And, and you must do that. And so this music plays in verse 7 to 12. And, um, and every race and language and nation, all the people in that province, I don't know if they're all gathered on these plains where this, the statue is set up, but they all bow down except for three people. One guess who those three people are, right? So we know who that is. And so It's interesting because in chapter 2, these wise men, these fortune tellers, astrologer people who are saved by Daniel because they can't, in their mystical arts and trickery, determine what this dream is. They can't interpret it either. And God gives Daniel the interpretation. And actually, these people who've been conquered, brought in, raised up, and now promoted above them have saved their necks. They're clearly not too happy because in the province of Babylon, these administrators, these fortune tellers, these astrologers, they're called Chaldeans. It's a term they give there, which it's kind of a synonym for Babylonians, but it's more used over this kind of group of administrator, mystical people. 
they don't like too much that these three Jewish people, not supposed to be part of their group, not supposed to be in charge of anything, in fact, are raised to some sort of you know, high place in this province. And they notice that these three aren't bowing down. And they go to the king and they say, Oh, great king. Right? They're buttering him up. You made this wonderful decree, didn't you? Yes, made a decree. And, and you said, whenever the music plays, we should all bow down. Yes, that's what I did. And there are some in your kingdom who have no regard for you. They don't care about you. They're not going to listen to you. They, they don't care about your idol, your greatness, your kingdom. And it's these three Jewish men you raised up. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And clearly the way they were, because they weren't just re- reporting, right? It, they were tattling, let's be honest, right? They're tattling because they don't like these guys have this position and they want, they're jealous, it's all motivated. The king doesn't see through their trickery this time as he does a few chapters before, last chapter. And so the king flies into a rage. He's angry because he, he set up this image of himself and he believes something of himself and their culture believes something of him. And they won't do his command. He has the power. He's the most powerful man in at least that part of the world, or as far as we understand in history, in the world. It was one of the greatest kingdoms ever. And there's three who aren't going to listen to him, three that he actually promoted. And so he's angry. He flies into a rage. And he asks them to come in. And it's interesting, even in his rage, he's not completely out of his mind. Because he, he does two things. When they come in, he says, uh, explain yourself. Like, just, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm sure, I'm sure there's you know, something wrong here. Explain why you didn't do this, and then I'm going to give you a chance to do it again. It's reasonable, even though he's in a rage. And so he does, and he calls them in. And it's interesting, their response. And so we'll, we'll start reading at Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, Listen to this. We do not need to defend or explain ourselves. That's the first thing he gave them up. We don't don't need to defend ourselves uh, before you. Verse 17. If, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Still respectful. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Let that sink in, their boldness, their faith, and their humility there. Most powerful words in this whole chapter, word, if, two letters, if. It's so important. We're going to come back to that again and again. So basically they're saying, okay, you're giving us a chance to explain ourselves. Uh, We're not going to explain ourselves. We won't defend our actions. We stand by them. And if you choose to throw us into this furnace, because that's what he decreed. He decreed, if you don't bow down, you'll be tossed in this furnace. Now we don't know exactly what furnace. There's lots of speculations what it might look like and what it might be for. And, but it's a big furnace big enough for people and they heat it enough that it will kill someone. And he's good at his job, right? Nebuchadnezzar's good at his job. So we can understand it's a threat that he's going to follow through on. And they say, if you do this thing, if you do it, our God has the ability to save us. He's going to save us. He's going to rescue us. But, but, even if he doesn't, We won't change. You do your worst, and we will not change what we've done. Because this is who we are, and we believe in God, the one true God. So there's no defending, and they say, if. 
Here's the reality about our lives and the point at which they find themselves before the king. Faith remains in the fire. Faith remains in the fire. The faith you have today remains when you get into a difficult situation. It remains with you in the fire. I said this last week, feel like a bit of a broken record. For those of you who don't know, it's a big plastic disc. You put it on a thing, you put a needle down, it makes sound, okay? Pre-MP3, all right? Uh, and if you've got a scratch on it, it skipped and looped back, okay? Uh, emergency personnel, first responders, cannot be trained for an emergency when they arrive. You've got to be trained beforehand. Now, I did say before, it's not so important that you have all the answers for what you might face. It's actually more important that you know who is with you. And that's the faith that remains with these three. To have a deeper faith tomorrow, you have to be deepening your faith today. If you're not deepening your faith today, what you can't foresee coming tomorrow can undo you. And in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends did not choose to be conquered, brought away to a distant land, raised up and told for the next three years, you're going to be assimilated. You're going to have different names. You're going to eat different food. You're going to learn different things, and you're going to become a Babylonian ruler so that you can sway your whole nation, all your people. They didn't choose that. They didn't choose to have someone come and knock at their door and say, oh, uh, the king has this dream. No one could tell him what the dream was, and no one could interpret it. And I know you didn't know anything about this. It was like the, the wise men who are already trained and in service. But since you're training to be that and they didn't answer, you're going to die. The, they didn't pick that. <laughs> so Daniel had to, in that moment, have a deep faith. And these three didn't understand or know that Nebuchadnezzar would completely misunderstand this gift God gave. God is reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar, letting him know he's a personal God, giving him a dream, and saying, you're a great kingdom. There'll be others who rise up, but... But the greatest kingdom will come through Jesus. I mean, it didn't say it will come through Jesus, but it will be God's kingdom. We know that looking back. And Nebuchadnezzar misunderstood it, built a great idol to himself, and it just goes back into looking towards himself. They didn't plan that. But what these three did is they had a kind of faith, and I'm just going to call it an even-if faith. They had an even-if faith. Even if God doesn't come and rescue us the way we want, even if through this persecution, this pressure, this desire to change, where we have to take a stand for our faith, it leads to our ruin rather than our rescue. Even if God seems to be distant and not listening in our minds and how we view it, we know he's rescuing us in some way anyway. Even if God doesn't come through the way I want, do you know what kind of faith most of us have? If we're honest, and I'll say this in all honesty, it's an only if faith. God, I see this thing coming. I need to take a stand for my faith. Or I'm going through a difficult time. Or this thing has come in my life that I can't control. I don't know what to do, and I'm at a low point. And if you do this for me, then I'll trust you. Only if you rescue me. Only if you do this. We have this only if faith. But we need an even if faith. In Hebrews 11, we find a chapter. So in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith because it recounts all these people in the New Testament who had great faith. Some of them ended up in rescue. Some of them ended up in ruin, like being martyred for their faith. 
ostracized, going through difficulty and trial and trouble. And others God blessed. And in Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2, there's blessing. They were promoted after each thing. Awesome, wonderful, sign me up for that. I will take a stand for my faith. And God, you'll see what I'm doing in my school and at my work and in my neighborhood. And I'm I'm not going to change my values and who I am and my identity in you. And I'll take a stand and others won't like it. But suddenly, they'll like it and I'll be promoted. Sign me up. That's not the way. How many, you know, of your places of business, if they say, you have to support this cause, do this thing, I don't care if it goes against your faith. And you say, hold on, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't want to do that thing. And they say, wonderful. We were looking for a new management position and we wondered who would stand against this memo we sent out and say no to it so we can find the person we want to promote. That's not the way life goes. And so sometimes it ends in ruin. So these people in Hebrews 11, it doesn't always work out. And so Hebrews 11, uh, here's a couple versions. Uh, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's the ESV. NLT says this, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Uh, Faith is is both certain and uncertain at the same time. It's completely reasonable and something we hope for. So faith is this confident assurance that this hope we have, based on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, it is a living hope as we sang about today. It's a reasonable faith. It's not just like, I I hope God's going to do this thing and have no evidence. Talk to people who follow Jesus and you will hear story after story of God coming through. It's an evidence-based faith. And we are sure of what we can't see yet. We don't know what's beyond that. When these three stood before the greatest king in that era with the most power on threat of death, they didn't know how he would respond to them saying, uh, we're not going to defend ourselves. <laughs> and if you throw us in the fire, we won't change our mind. And if God doesn't rescue us, which you can and he will, and he's going to do it because you're not more powerful than him, we're not going to change our mind. They didn't know how he would respond to that at all. It's an assurance of who is with you, not what will happen. Your faith remains in the fire, the faith you have today. And so we need to be deepening our faith. Later in the book of Hebrews, we find out this about faith. Because uh, we know God can rescue us. And we know he listens. And we know he can work. So regardless of the outcome, this is what happens. Verse 33 and 34. By faith, uh, read the list for yourself. All these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. That's coming up in a few chapters. They quenched the flames of fire. We're going to get to that in a moment. And they escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength, and they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. So what happens? What happens beginning at verse 19 through 23? There are some details you need to understand. And if you don't understand the details of what Nebuchadnezzar does in that moment, it doesn't make the result of this quite as deep and rich. So there's a few things he does. So first of all, he <laughs> flies into a, a rage. Okay, So he, he goes crazy. Uh, the, the Aramaic it's written in says his face is contorted. He's so angry. Everyone can tell. Like, so he's mad. Now he's, now he's fuming. He's wild with rage. 
And he does a few things. First of all, he heats the furnace seven times hotter. So they got out their Babylonian thermostat and they cranked it up seven times. That term seven times, it's, it's likely a Hebrew way of uh, writing because this is written you know, by Daniel. And for Jewish people, when you see the number seven throughout Scripture, why is seven always in Scripture? It's often the number of perfection or completion. So that means what Daniel is writing to people, what they would understand would be he heated the furnace as hot as it could possibly go. Couldn't be any hotter. It's not like, you know, uh, they could turn it to 10, but they set it to 7, just in case. It's as hot as it could possibly go. And so it's seven times hotter. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar got the strongest men in his army. Okay, Big army conquered the world, right? Conquered the, 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 at least that part of the world. The strongest men he had tied them up. So we know that, like, they weren't just possibly, you know, they're tied up a little bit and the knots aren't too good and, uh, and they can get out. There's God's worked this plan because these, these men tying them up, the, their fingers got all of a sudden arthritis in the moment. They couldn't tie it up, right? They're the strongest men. They're fully bound by professional soldiers. The strongest ones. Third, they're fully clothed. In fact, uh, the text here gives four different words for the clothing. In case we're we misunderstand. It talks about their headgear, likely some sort of a turban. It talks about their inner tunic. It talks about their outer cloak. And then all their accessories, all the rest of the stuff. Scarves and sandals and all the rest of the stuff. It lists them specifically. They're fully clothed. So what we know to be true next is they list these three people's names. It's so that as we're reading, we understand, first of all, this is a hot furnace. These guys are bound up, and they go in in their clothes. And as the soldiers who are to toss them into the opening of the furnace, and some scholars think it's like horizontal, and they're tossing them in this way. Some believe it's some sort of a pit and has an opening, and they would toss them down and in. But there would be another opening to put fuel in. So we don't know if Nebuchadnezzar is watching through that opening where they're making it hot, or the opening where they throw them in. But the text is very clear, the word they use. These men were thrown in. Couldn't shuffle and jump in of their own volition. They were carried by strong, trained soldiers and thrown into the fire, bound up in their clothes, and it lists their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the men who carried them and had to throw them in because they couldn't get close enough died. The heat was so extreme, those men died. And so we know something should have happened. They should have just burned and died. And Nebuchadnezzar is in such a rage. He's so fuming. He's watching this. Think about it. These are three that he promoted. And he didn't need to. Over top of all of his other guys. He builds a statue to himself. These are his leaders. The ones he just promoted. Put over this province and said, follow these guys. And now these guys are turned against him. He's fuming. And he's watching this carefully, isn't he? Nebuchadnezzar is the first one to notice what happens. In fact, the text says he leaps to his feet. He jumps up. He's the first one to notice what's going on. We pick it back up in verse 24. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them in the furnace? If you're an advisor, what are you going to say, no matter what you're seeing? You say this, yes, your majesty, 
We certainly did. I don't know, I'd be pretty afraid. But like, so picture, right? Nebuchadnezzar's watching, and he's saying, didn't we tie three guys up and throw them in there? And his advisors are saying, yes, we certainly did. But he says, look, look for yourselves. Guys, heads this way. Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound. They're not tied up. They're walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god, or a, a better translation is a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they did, and they stepped out of the fire. Though it's seven times hotter, though they're tied up, though the men who threw them in died, they come out, clothes aren't singed, they don't smell of smoke, and there's four people walking around in the fire. He says, it looks like a son of the gods walking around in there, and then only three come out unharmed. Where's the fourth? Who's the fourth? Well, we can speculate that it's for sure an angel, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord comes, and there's some sort of worship towards that angel, or something miraculous happens beyond what you see happen with other angels, it's most people's opinion that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, it's, it's Jesus before he takes on full humanity, sets his divinity aside. He doesn't get rid of his divinity, just parts of it, so he can be fully God, fully human, and step into our fire. Before he steps into our life, steps into our fire, comes as a humble baby, lives, teaches, crucified, buried, rises again, ascends, that we might be free from the bounds of our sin, know that he is walking with us through our fire right now. He enters in with these three men who said, even if God doesn't rescue us, I know he can. I don't know how he will, but he can. They were prepared to die. They took even if faith into the fire. What I think is really neat about this is that they're walking. Why? Why say walking? Why isn't it enough to say, like, there's three guys who are bound up. They're unbound, their clothes are, and they're just, like, hanging out at the door of the furnace. Like, we're unharmed, we're good. They're just walking. I think it tells us that Jesus walks with us no matter where we end up for him. He just walks with us. It's not as important that you know the answers. It's not important that you know your response when the pressure is on. When you have to take a stand for your faith and it may mean something terrible. You lose friends. You lose a job. We, we know that as Jesus' return approaches, there are going to be more and more pressure. In fact, we're a pretty insulated, isolated period of history, right? For most of history, the, the church, so not the institution, the people have been persecuted and underground and had their lives threatened. Most of the rest of the world has that experience too. The pressure we're under is felt the same, but it's not the same. And so we may someday have greater pressure to take a stand for Jesus and who we follow. So what happens? Verse, 30, verse 28, sorry. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants. We know it's not an angel. It's 
All Nebuchadnezzar could say, it looks like a son of the gods. Little did he know, it's the son of God who trusted him. They defied the kings, they defied my command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. This is a really cool detail. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned to heaps of rubble. There's no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted. There's a blessing, the promotion again. He promotes them again to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So here's where it gets uncomfortable. I'll ask you a question. Does anyone recognize that um, punishment? He said, if anyone speaks against their God, you're going to be torn limb for limb. I'm going to burn your houses and make them piles of rubble. Anyone remember somewhere else in Daniel where he said that already? Or who he said that to or why? Anyone? I know it's nerve-wracking. You're like, it is the right answer. I don't want to answer wrong. Anyone want to wager? Can you remember? Anyone? It's all good. Because I wouldn't say it either. Because I wouldn't want to be wrong. He said the same thing to those advisors, those wise men, those fortune tellers who told on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if they didn't tell him his dream, and if they didn't interpret it, he said, I'm going to rip you limb from limb, I'm going to take your families and your homes, I'm going to burn them to the ground and make them rubble. If you don't do this thing for me, and now he says, that's a cool thing for me to do, I'm the king, that's my style. But if you speak against God, anyone in this province speaks against their God. We don't know if he still wanted people to worship his idol or not. But for sure, he says, anybody who speaks a word against their God, I'll do that thing to you. And he has protected them. God not only rescued them by walking through the fire with them. The way that those three men walked through the fire changed those around them. What an incredible witness we have. When we walk willingly through something, without defense, without making excuses, and just say, I don't know what's going to happen, but my faith in God is deep. I trust Jesus and Him alone. And even if He doesn't come and rescue me, even if He doesn't do this thing I'm praying for that He can do, I won't lose faith in Him. Most of us say only if. Again, maybe it's at school for you. And you're forced to make decisions on the projects you do. The things you say in class, the things you believe. Maybe it's your kids and you don't know what to do with that. Maybe it's with your friend group or a team. We see that in sports all the time with different causes or companies. Where people put jerseys on or sponsorships and they're uncomfortable with that. And take a stand against something. And it doesn't work out well for them. This is much deeper. Maybe it's at work. You're given a policy. You must do this. You can't do this. You can't speak against this. You can't believe this. You can't. And you don't know what to do. And so do I stay silent? Do I speak up? I don't have an answer for that this morning. God will lead you in the moment. The more important thing is that you stand in who goes with you. Remember, you take the faith you have now into the fire. But if you want to see your experience in the fire change your heart and those around you, you need to have a faith that is an even-if faith. An even-if faith. Now, 
when I was in the middle of 2020, uh, it was, I mean, it was a hard time for all of us, right? Middle of pandemic and stuff. And so I was at a particularly low spot. And I remember being up in, up in my bedroom. And I, I was trying, I was racking my brain and ripping through my text messages to see if I could tell exactly what period of time this was. But it was sometime in 2020. And the pressures of what to do for church. Do we distance? Do we not distance? People are saying mask, don't mask. Vaccinate, don't vaccinate. And I'm working with the elders to try and make the best decisions here. And Stephanie is going through testing and or treatment for cancer. And there's stuff going on with school and with kids and me personally. And it was just all these things coming against me. And I felt like I was in the middle of the fire and I didn't know what to do. And I was reaching a breaking point. And I got a text message from a friend who attends this church, who's here today. And it did one thing for me. It reminded me that though I'm in a fire, I wasn't noticing Jesus. And so my hope this morning as we play this song is that if you're in a fire, maybe you would just for a moment spot that there's a fourth person walking around who can unbind you, leave you unharmed, and walks with you. Have a listen. There's a grace when the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing in At the space between where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be alone There was another in the fire Standing next to me There was another in the waters Holding back the seas And should I Beneath the water I'm no longer a slave to my sin anymore And should I fall in the space between What remains of me
was going through, in the middle of all we were going through, maybe in the middle of all you're going through now. If you miss Jesus, you miss the opportunity to trust in a deeper way. Here's the reality. Even if faith trusts Jesus in the fire. When you have even if faith trusts him in the fire, it makes all the difference. If you forget Jesus is there, you can miss out on the blessing. And maybe the blessing doesn't come in this life. Honestly. I, I, I do not in any way, shape, or form, believe in the prosperity gospel. Because my life hasn't worked out that way, and the most people I know. God blesses us in ways deeper than giving us a bit of money, or repaying us for good. If I lived in his justice, what I deserve is not what he gives. I don't deserve him walking through the fire with me. But if I have an even-if faith, when I walk through the fire, when I notice him, He does something in me that no bit of religion, no bit of church attendance, no good behavior can do. He does something in my heart that only the gospel and Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit can do. And we need to decide now that we will make a stand. I'm not going to do what I want. I'm not going to do what others want. I'm not going to do what feels comfortable if it goes against what God wants. Because I know that when I end up in the fire... I'm going to be clinging to only if faith. That's the moment that many people wander away from God. They shake their fists and say, God, where were you? And he's saying, I'm right there with you. The same Jesus who died on a cross because his father didn't rescue him away from that, but let him go through that for our sake, walks with you. Walks with you. Here's the crazy thing about all this. As, as I thought of how I'd communicate this, there is, there is, a, there is a sense that if you don't walk into the fire with even if faith, you're going to have a heap of trouble. Right? It's a really bad place to be, to be holding on to only if faith and waiting for God to come through only the way you want or to do things you want or to reject what he's called you to do. I'm going to live my way. I'm going to do my thing. And God, you keep blessing me or I'm not following you. When you end up in that place, here's the crazy thing. I wish it was an either or. I wish it was as easy to tell you if you have, even if faith, you'll walk through the fire, Jesus is with you, whether you end up in ruin or rescue, it'll all work out. Uh, and if you go in with only a faith, you're in real trouble. So you better all hit the altar this morning and turn to even if faith, because if you don't have it, you're in real trouble. The reality is you need even if faith. You need to be deepening your faith now, because it's better in your, 
in the fire. But God is so gracious and merciful that if you're in the fire, if you're in this difficulty and you're clinging to your only if faith, if you're saying, God, unless you do this, I won't follow you. God, I'm going to live my way. God, I'm doing this my way. All it takes is a moment for you to spot that Jesus is already there with you. He doesn't require that you do things right. Isn't that wonderful? And it just takes a moment to be reminded that there's another in the fire. And in that moment of only if faith, he can change your heart, change your perspective. And he puts in you an even if faith. So yes, be building an even if faith now. If you're, if you're taking a stand against God and who you are and what you're doing, come back to him. Turn back to him. He loves you. He wants to walk with you. And he walks with you regardless of what you do. It's just we don't recognize it. And if we don't have that even if faith, if we don't recognize him, we stay tied up on our own. He wants to free us. He wants to rescue us. He wants to save us. The things that are meant to destroy and harm, burn us, singe us, ruin us, affect the very core of who we are. He wants to have us walk through the fire unsinged. And when a world around us that stands in opposition to Jesus Christ of Nazareth sees his followers walk through difficulty with grace and mercy and a confident strength and hope in Jesus, that speaks more than any sermon I could ever preach. Right? So I encourage you this morning, whether you've experienced rescue or ruin, regardless of what kind of fire you're in, whether it's a stand for your very faith, or it's just something internal, a choice. You've turned from Jesus and He wants you back. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus ever and you're just checking this all out. Know that God is good. He doesn't promise to protect you from bad things. He promises to walk with you through them so that he can bring something deeper. And one day Jesus will return. This is how we have a confident faith. It's based on confident hope. Because Jesus rose again. He ascended and he promised, I will return. And when he returns, he will make all things new. All that stuff, all the fires, all the persecution, all the pressure. It's all gone. And one day we live with him. And all the stuff we're wrestling with inside, he makes right. All the things externally that we don't know what to do with, he makes right. And so there is a blessing to come even if it doesn't come in our world. But today, I encourage you, I implore you, I beg of you, spend time with Jesus. Get yourself in a space with him where you ask him to place in your heart an even if faith. A time of pressure is coming for you. A time of fire is coming for you in some way, shape, or form in your life. I'm not even talking prophetically. Some of you might be thinking, yes, end times. Sure, that's scriptural. But in our life until then, there's lots of stuff. We need even if faith for ourselves, for our households, and for those around us. And may you remember that there's another there with you, regardless of how alone you feel. Would you stand with me this morning?
Jesus, thank you that you go with us. You never leave us alone. Lord, what you did in that furnace, Jesus, you promised as your last words when you ascended into heaven. Be sure that I am with you to the very end of whatever age you're in. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will work in you to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, to be transformed. May we be your church. May we be your people despite the opposition that comes against us. And may we be rooted and established in an even if kind of faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, A few instructions. You can sit down. And thanks online for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful week and join us for annual meeting tonight. Please leave the chairs in the center up. We're going to leave all the stuff up this morning because there's annual meeting. If you're not a member, we really want you to come too. We're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff moving forward. If you can stack the chairs on the side and have some cake, we'd love for you to do that. Lord bless you as you go. Have a great week. Yeah.